Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. What's up, you guys? I'm Andrea. And I'm Haley. And you're listening to Inhuman, a true crime podcast. So welcome back, everybody. We are going to get, <laughs> we are going to do part two of the Golden State Killer um, today, but before we get started, we wanted to touch base on what's going on in the Madeline McCann case, I guess you could say. So Haley has a little, I guess, update. Update, not really sort a, of. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, it's not really an update, but yeah, what's yeah, going on? Yeah, I want to I talk about it because I know a lot of people have been asking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't know the Madeline McCann case, we did cover it in episodes I believe 37 and 38 or somewhere around there. So really old episodes, but we did cover it in full depth. There have been some updates since then, um, since we first covered it. Mm -hmm. And if you guys don't know, she was kidnapped from a hotel in Portugal that her family was visiting for vacation. Um, Now authorities believe that a German man named Christian Bruckner abducted and murdered her. he is currently in jail serving another sentence, so I think that they're trying to basically find enough evidence to charge him with Madeline's murder, but they have come right. out and said they believe she was murdered. Right. So as that's all been going on, this that's kind of still pending, and a young woman from Poland has recently gone viral believing that she – or saying that she believes she's Madeline McCann. So this woman is 21-year-old Julia Wendell. She's from Poland, and she basically said that she, her grandparents said something that got her thinking, and she started looking more into the Madeline McCann disappearance. She said that she doesn't know a lot about her childhood. She doesn't remember anything before age four. There's not a lot of pictures of her when she was young. Um, she said that she has asked for her birth certificate and for pictures of when her mom was pregnant and other medical records, and her parents haven't given her any of that. Yeah. Um, A couple of things. She's 21. Madeline would be 19 today, but she believes that she was lied to about her age. So that could explain that age difference. Um, And she also has a lot of physical similarities to Madeline. So she does have sort of similar bone structure. She shared a lot of photos of herself when she was young versus the photos of Madeline. Um, But the most convincing thing is she has the same eye defect as Madeline had right in the same eye but isn't hers like not as dark or something yeah it's not quite as dark but um because Madeline's was like dark brown and this one looks it's a little bit lighter yeah but it could have gotten lighter with age so Madeline's was caused by an extremely rare condition called coloboma in her right eye right and I don't think Julia has explained where Where, if she even knows where hers came from right um 
And it's definitely not as dark, but all the photos that she has, she's a little bit older. So who knows if it's something that might fade. But I think that's the thing that a lot of people are paying attention to because this is such a rare thing. And for this girl to have it, have other similarities to Madeline and not know anything about her childhood, it seems like too much of a coincidence. Yeah. There have been reports that she was able to get in touch with Madeline's parents, Kate and Jerry McCann, and that they're going to do a DNA test. That hasn't been confirmed by the McCanns or any investigators, um, but that's what's being reported. Right. So we'll see if that actually happens. Personally, I do not believe she is Madeline McCann. I believe she believes she is. I think mm-hmm. that she really believes she is from everything she's found. Yeah. But unfortunately, I do think Madeline was killed all those years ago. Yeah. Um, but... You know, we'll see. I definitely think that this girl has something that's being hidden from her about her childhood. It Something's seems like going that, on, yeah. and I hope she can get answers. Um, but as far as her being Madeline McCann, I, I really don't believe it. But again, you never know. There's still a small part of me that's like, it could be. We we don't know. Right. Um, but I just don't. I don't think that that's the case, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, we can't know for sure until the DNA comes out, but just based on the looks alone for me like seeing her childhood pictures and then seeing which granted you know the differences in age is a little bit you know there's like a few years but she just doesn't look the same to me I don't know yeah I agree I feel like in all of Madeline's pictures I mean she was only three when she disappeared but Mm -hmm. in the ones from when she was like really young to when she was three you you can tell it's her yeah and the photos of Julia just don't look quite similar enough but yeah but yeah, we don't know. I'd love we'll to hear see. your guys' thoughts. Let us know. Maybe we'll do like a thought box on our Instagram stories tomorrow um, when this episode comes out and you guys can yeah. let us know your thoughts. And we'll definitely keep you updated, whatever yeah. comes comes of this. But just wanted to mention it because I know a lot of people are like really invested in that case like we are and are right. probably hearing about this and are like, wait, there's a girl who says she's Madeline. What's going on? So just yeah. wanted to explain what's going on in the case. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did that because I've had a lot of people reach out and ask me like, what do you think? Like, do you know anything? And I'm like, I have no idea. Like, yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. Like we can speculate all day long, but until we get that DNA, there's, yeah, there's no way to know. Yeah. And even the Instagram account that she initially created and went viral on, Mm -hmm. there have been probably a hundred fake Instagrams now. So it's really hard to even find the original Instagram account. Like I was even struggling to find it again because I didn't follow it. I just like looked at it. And now there's all kinds of people trying to be like, I'm this account. I'm Julia. And it's like, come on, people. Yeah, that's so sick. Like, yeah, it's one thing because I I genuinely believe genuinely believe that she thinks that she is Madeline. But I don't like I don't think she's doing it for like attention or for like, you know, to sensationalize it or any. Yeah, yeah, I don't think she I think she genuinely thinks that she is. But these other people who are capitalizing on that that's disgusting. they're doing it for that that's yeah. disgusting like that's i mean these are people's lives this is someone's daughter very very mm-hmm. young daughter that got you know taken when she was only three years old like don't do yeah. that so sick. yeah yeah no i agree with you i think when i first saw it like before i looked into it at all my initial thought was oh she's just doing this to get attention and then once yeah. i looked into it more i was like no she actually believes she, is. she is yeah but yeah. I just don't think don't think she is. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious to find out. So, yeah, we'll definitely keep you guys updated. All right. 
Now, before we get started on part two, I do want to thank, I forgot to do this last episode, but I do want to thank all of our listeners who suggested this case because we've had quite a few. Um, So I just wanted to give like a general thank you to everyone for sending it (laughs) in and please keep sending in case suggestions and listener stories. And you guys can do that right on our website at inhumanpodcast.com. I know we get a lot of people that um, suggest cases over on our Instagram and our TikTok, um, which I do try to jot them down if I have the time. But the best place to suggest cases is on our uh, website or through website. our email. So Yeah. I yeah. always, whenever we get a DM or anything, I just say, please submit it through our website because yeah. <laughs> it's too hard to keep track of. I know. Just send a message. Because we so. get a lot. I mean, we get several a day. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, on part one, we began examining Joseph James D'Angelo's early life and his crimes as the Visalia ra- uh, ransacker, which I had a few people correct me on. So, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for being nice. Um, I'm probably still going to say Visalia just because I can't. Uh, once it's, it's in like my your mind. It's southern accent. I feel it like is. Too. It is. It's like, a, it's like my brain and my southern accent. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then also his crimes as the East Area Rapist. So today we're going to discuss his crimes as the original Night Stalker, which is so crazy that we didn't even get into that part of it yet. I know. It's <laughs> insane. I was telling Robert, my husband, about the case this morning because he doesn't really know anything about it. And he yeah. doesn't listen to the podcast because he doesn't like true crime. <laughs> um, and I was like... Well, he's the Golden State Killer. And I was like, well, actually, he was technically <laughs> the East Area Rapist and then the Night Stalker and then the Golden State Killer. And we haven't even covered any of that yet. And he's like, didn't you do like an hour episode on it? And I'm like, yeah, yep. there's a lot in this case. <laughs> yeah. And just so you guys know, there is going to be a part three because your girl couldn't cram it all into two episodes. I just I just couldn't. It wouldn't do the case justice. So yeah. I think that's totally fair. Yeah. I'm sure everyone will understand. Yeah. So we're also going to discuss um, what or who rather led to him being named the Golden State Killer. We're going to talk about the investigation. And then in part three, we'll get into the arrest, the trial, and then the aftermath of the Golden State Killer. Yeah. Okay. So D'Angelo's first crime as the original Night Stalker took place on December 30th, 1979. So this was about three months after his last attack that had been foiled. If you remember in part one, his last, um, like, crime as the East Area Rapist kind of got botched. So, yeah. So these victims were 35-year-old Alexandria Manning and 44-year-old Robert Offerman. Around 3 a.m., several neighbors reported hearing gunshots. When the police arrived, they discovered a gruesome scene. Alexandria was found lying on the bed. She was nude and had been shot in the back of the head. Oh my gosh. Surprisingly, there were no signs of sexual assault. Robert was also found nude, but he was lying on the floor on his knees. He sustained four bullet wounds to his upper torso. He was also found with white cord around his left wrist, and there was no ransacking noted in the police report. Outside, investigators found on the back patio a plastic bag containing turkey bones and other scraps. 
The same night, their neighbor's son's bike had been stolen. It was later located by police several blocks away, but investigators believe that the murderer may have used the bicycle for his escape. Okay. I cannot believe it's already February. I mean, this year is flying by as it always does. Mm -hmm. And if you're a small business owner, you know how crazy the year can get and how fast it can go by. But we have a way for you to get ahead of the competition this year by using Stamps.com to mail and ship. Stamps.com lets you print your own postage and shipping labels right from your home or office, and it's ready to go in minutes. That is so awesome. I wish I would have known about that when I was shipping stuff for my previous business. (laughs) Stamps.com is the post office elevated. Postage rates recently increased again, but Stamps.com has the best discounts in the industry, up to 84% off USPS and UPS rates you can find anywhere else. My favorite part is that Stamps.com automatically tells you the cheapest and fastest shipping options, making it even more easy for you. Set your business up for success when you get started with Stamps.com today. Sign up with promo code INHUMAN for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code INHUMAN to get a four-week trial and free postage and a digital scale. So then on March 13, 1980, the next two victims were targeted. This was Lyman Smith, a reputable attorney in the area, and his wife Charlene, and they were both murdered in their home. They had been bludgeoned to death with a log from the wood pile in their own yard. Charlene had also been raped. Mm-hmm. Three days later, Lyman's son found them. On March 16th, the 12-year-old boy who lived with his mother went to his father and stepmother's house to mow their lawn and found them both deceased. I cannot imagine. That's horrible. Yeah. When police arrived, they found Charlene's ankles tied together with white drapery cord. Her wrists were tied behind her back. She had been struck once or twice to the left side of her head. Lyman was found nude and face down on his bed. His ankles were tied with drapery cord as well. An interesting thing that police noted were that both victims' bindings had been tied with an interesting knot. The diamond knot. Okay. So this type of knot is also known as a lanyard knot because it has a decorative loop on the end. And during the investigation, detectives from the Ventura PD and Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department completely rejected the idea that the previous murder of Alexandria and Robert could be related to this murder. Which is so crazy to me because, like, what are the odds that two couples get murdered within, like, a three-month period? Right. (laughs) So crazy. So DNA from this case would be later used to link D'Angelo to the original Night Stalker murders. Okay. Also, because of this case and a few others where D'Angelo used this type of knot, he would be briefly referred to in some of these cases as the Diamond Knot Killer. 
don't know if you've oh, ever heard wow. that. I don't think I've heard that one. Yeah. So um, it was very brief. And I'm also like, why are we so quick to give these assholes nicknames? But okay. Because yeah. all yeah. it does is feed their ego. But he was briefly referred to as the Diamond Knot Killer. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So the next murder would take place on August 19th. Uh, 20, 28-year-old Patrice Harrington and her husband, 24-year-old Keith Harrington, were found bludgeoned to death in their home. Both victims were found lying face down on the bed with multiple head injuries. The comforter had been placed over their heads before they were bludgeoned. Patrice had also been sexually assaulted. Mm. There was evidence that the couple's wrists and ankles had been bound, but investigators found no ligatures at the scene. They also found no murder weapon. And this would be a common thing in a lot of the scenes. He would take the ligatures and the murder weapon for whatever reason, because he left them in a lot of the other cases. So I don't know what changed as far as like his MO, but that's what he started to do. What they did recover from the scene, though, was semen. Okay. So this was found on the back of Patrice's upper right leg and on the comforter that was placed over their bodies. The Harringtons had only been married for three months at the time of their murders. It's not so sad. Yeah, that is so really awful. sad. Keith was a medical student at UC Irvine and Patrice was a nurse. Over five months later, on February 5th, 1981... D'Angelo raped and murdered Manuela Watoon. She was only 28 years old. Manuela was married at the time of her death, but her husband was actually admitted into the hospital the night that she was murdered. Oh my gosh. Isn't that so fucked up? Wow. Oh. Manuela was found on her bed, but she was inside of a sleeping bag. Ligature marks were found on both her wrist and her right ankle. Much like in the Harrington murders, it appeared Manuela had been tied up before she was bludgeoned. But again, no ligature or murder weapon had been left behind. There was a small ball of fibers found at the base of her spine. But from what I read, it doesn't seem like they ever linked it to anything specific. But it was noted in the police report. Okay. The rear sliding glass door to her own, her home had pry marks and damage to the frame. And police believe that that was most likely the point of entry for the killer. One unusual thing about this crime scene, as opposed to the others, was that her television had also been found in her backyard. But investigators thought maybe the killer was trying to make the crime appear to be a botched robbery. Hmm. Okay, that would make sense. Because he normally wouldn't take large items like that or even move large items like that around. Right. And DNA from this crime scene would also be used later to link D'Angelo to the crime. Okay. So the original Night Stalker's next attack occurred on July 27th, and the victims were 35-year-old Sherry Domingo and her boyfriend, 27-year-old Greg Sanchez. So Sherry had been temporarily staying at this residence. Um, it was owned by one of her family members when her murder took place. When the police arrived on scene, they found Greg lying face down on the floor, partially inside the bedroom closet. 
he was nude and it appeared that he had been shot in the cheek while in a kneeling position. Police assumed that he fell to the floor and then was struck in the head. He then tried to get up and was struck again. My gosh. He then stumbled to the closet and he eventually eventually died from his injuries. There was no evidence that he had been tied up. Uh, Sherry was found lying nude on the bed, covered by bedding. She had been sexually assaulted. She was face down with both arms behind her back. She had ligature marks on her wrists and ankles, indicating that she had been bound with her ankles tied to her wrist. She had sustained one single fatal blow to the head with the same weapon used on Greg. Hmm. Again, no murder weapon. Around 3.30 a.m., several neighbors heard gunshot or heard a gunshot, but none of them actually reported it. This would be the last couple murdered by the original Night Stalker. Okay. It's so crazy because, you know, when he finally does get arrested, he's charged with, I think it's 13 murders. And it seems... It doesn't feel like it's 13 cases, but it's because they're couples that it's right. like, where are all these people? And then you're like, oh, it's because it's, it's a husband each and one a wife. Is two. Or, yeah. yeah. So if you remember, D'Angelo's first daughter was born in September of the same year. And a lot of investigators believed that this was why he stopped his killing spree, essentially. Okay. Got but it. But five years later... He would strike one final time, and this was what we believe to be his final victim, uh, Janelle Cruz. So on May 4th, 1986, 18-year-old Janelle was home alone while her family was on vacation in Mexico. That evening, a guy friend from work had come over to hang out with Janelle, but he left around 1045. While he was there, they heard some strange noises coming from near the garage and the backyard, but they didn't think too much of it. The following evening, around 5 p.m., a real estate agent previewing the cruise's home made a horrific discovery. Hmm. Janelle's body was lying across her bed with her bra pulled down to her waist. She had been brutally beaten in the face and sexually assaulted. Blood was present at the scene in Janelle's bedroom, but also in the kitchen and by the front door. Blades of grass were found at the head of Janelle's bed and near her feet and knees. No weapons were recovered from the scene, but Janelle's father later discovered a pipe wrench was missing from their backyard, and investigators believed that to be the murder weapon. Oh, okay. Isn't that awful, though? Gosh. That is terrible. Interestingly, a detective from Sacramento, Sacramento, I don't know why I said it so weird, (laughs) believed that the East Area Rapist was responsible for the Galetta murders, which were that of Robert Offerman, Deborah Manning, Sherry Domingo, and Gregory Sanchez. But the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office wasn't wasn't buying it and they believed that those crimes were committed by a local career criminal but he was also later murdered so they couldn't really pursue that lead yeah but that's what they that's what they figured and they just weren't even listening or having anything Hmm. to do with that theory that's so frustrating but also at the time like i understand i feel Mm -hmm. like 
this is still kind of on the earlier side for when people were realizing that like serial killers would travel anywhere you know anywhere and this <laughs> yeah. is I mean, within the same state so right I, I get it but it's frustrating it's like oh why couldn't you just connected it yeah so you can see here like investigators in some cases are starting to kind of piece together some of these crimes but unfortunately it would not be until a few decades later when these crimes would officially be linked together so we're going to get into the process of how that came to be now okay so in part one, we touched base on the ransacker and the ears or the East Area Rapist MO. Um, police were able to tie together some of ears crimes with the ransackers due to the commonalities of the perps MOs. So for example, he seemed to follow a like quote unquote script of sorts. In many of the attacks, he would say the same thing repeatedly. He tells some of his victims all I want is food or money. And then he would proceed to eat their food, drink their beverages, steal their money. <laughs> In the ransacker cases, as well as many of the ear cases, he'd rummage through the victim's drawers, leaving their homes a mess. In most of the ear attacks, the perp would place dishes on the back of the male companions to ensure they wouldn't move. And he could continue his attack on the women and girls unbothered. In almost all of the ear cases, he would tie up the victim's hands, often with shoelaces, and always so tight that their circulation was cut off. All of the ransacker and ear cases, the victim stated that their attacker would speak through clenched teeth in a harsh whisper or growl. He frequently still... Uh, small souvenirs or pictures of the victims he'd rarely touch the victim's breasts and then there was the crying <laughs> later in the case investigators thought some of the ears behaviors were more of a red herring they felt that ear was doing this to possibly throw off the investigation and okay. the good old media was unfortunately perpetuating that behavior by reporting that he was crazy, schizophrenic, etc. Right. But there's still a lot of debate whether or not these tears were genuine or more of a herring. So we don't really know, but what's your opinion? What do you think? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hard because it's like part of you is like, okay, well, you know, a lot of these serial killers, they do suffer from like mental illnesses and like instabilities yeah. and things like that. But I don't know. I kind of feel like maybe it was bullshit a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of the way that I'm leaning. Yeah. It just, it's hard. Like, you want to, you want to believe it, but. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. So over the years, in both the ransacker and the East Area Rapist cases, a lot of evidence has been discarded. Not only that, but due to the years the attacks took place, there wasn't much they could do because there was, you know, unadvanced forensic technology. So what little right. DNA or whatever, you know, evidence they did have, there wasn't much they could do with it. Right. So... 
they had very little to nothing to tie these crimes together DNA-wise. Fortunately, DNA was preserved and examined from the original Night Stalker scenes where it was actually present. Wow. Yeah. So decades after those crimes took place, investigators were able to obtain a forensic link between most of the original Night Stalker murders thanks to that DNA evidence. Wow, that's pretty impressive that, like, they kept so much of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many of the original Night Stalker DNA links were made in 2001, but it wouldn't be until May of 2011 that the original Night Stalker's murder case of Sherry Domingo and Grant uh, Greg Sanchez was added. So okay. if you remember, they thought that it was potentially the local criminal or right. career criminal, but they actually did, thanks to the DNA, DNA. Wow. link okay. it. So, but it Just was like, till years so, later. yeah, like 2011. That's so crazy yeah. to think that, that oh, it was this person. And then really it was Someone this guy. Yeah. At, like an infamous, like other mm-hmm. criminal. Yeah. It just is so crazy to me that, like, in any of these cases that they, like, were smart enough to preserve DNA. Like, I feel like at this point that was happening more often. But when it first started happening, like... Like in the 70s, yeah. Yeah, like, for them to think, let's collect this DNA because you don't know. Like, I feel like we don't think like that in today's society of, like, what's, you know, what could be possible in 10 years from Mm -hmm. now because now it feels like a lot of times... Yeah, we're like, the, you know, we can do everything. And I'm sure it's different in detective work and, like, actual investigators. But it yeah. just always impresses me that that was something that they did. and So proactive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of smart people out there. And I'm sure a lot of these, like, you know, criminal investigators, uh, people that work with, like, scientists. I don't know all the technical terms. I'm not a professional. But, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that they had those thoughts. I mean, obviously, they did to think to think to do that. So that's yeah, great that they it's did impressive. That. It's mm-hmm. good. So, unfortunately, none of the other crimes, specifically the East Area Rapist crimes, could be linked by DNA because thanks to the good old statute of limitations on rape crimes... Oh. That evidence was all thrown out. Why the hell is there a statute of limitations on any crime? Especially this, like rape? I will never understand that. Like, just because Mm -hmm. it happened so many years ago, you're not going to prosecute somebody? Like, just because they got away with it for this many years, they can go forever by getting away with it? Like, that is not okay. I cannot think of a single crime that I would be like, there should that be a statute sense. of limitations. No. Maybe yeah. like petty theft. Like, okay, maybe yeah. if the, if it only happened once and the person like moved on and never did it again. Right. But rape, murder, like there should never be Mm-mm. any statute of limitations on those kind of crimes. And my thing is, is like when someone's, when someone is violated in, the, in that way, they sometimes have to go through decades of mm-hmm. therapy and they might not even have the courage to even talk about it much less report it so why are we putting limitations on these victims it doesn't make any sense to me at all whatsoever yeah like it it is going to affect the victims for their entire life forever so the person who did it should be held accountable for their entire life absolutely so in 2011 when the dna testing was linked to the east area rapist and original night stalker crimes 
armchair detectives who had been following and investigating the case for years, they created the acronym EROS, which you may have remember I touched base on a little bit in um, part one. Yeah. And then in 2013, Michelle McNamara rebranded the enigmatic monster again, and she dubbed him the Golden State Killer. And she chose that nickname because in her mind, it perfectly reflected his reign of terror across the state of California, which is the Golden State, if you guys didn't know that. Yeah. So she came up with that name. I think I said that in in part one, too, but um, she actually dubbed him the Golden State Killer, which I think is kind of neat. If he's going to have to have a nickname, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that was smart of her to kind of like rebrand it since there had been so many different names throughout the years. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just like an unknown killer. It's like, this is him and this is all that he did. Right. Instead of just being like, okay, this is when he was the ear and this is when he was the on and then, you know. Right. Right. (laughs) So. So now we're going to talk a little more about the iconic Michelle McNamara, who in my mind, she was like one of the most vital parts of this case. Obviously, the investigators were very important too. Um, but I feel like to be a person who was not getting paid, who was dedicating their personal time to this case, like it is just absolutely remarkable, like what she accomplished. Yeah, she's sound. I don't, I honestly don't know a ton about her, and mm-hmm. she sounds like a badass from everything you've told me just while like yeah. reading her book and everything. Yeah. So when Michelle was in high school, um, she was actually only 14 years old. A woman named Kathleen Lombardo was murdered just a few blocks from her childhood home. And after this, her interest turned passion for true crime only grew. Okay. As an adult, Michelle moved to Hollywood to become a writer, and she eventually married comedian and actor Patton Oswalt. And he encouraged her to start a blog and pursue her passions. So in 2006, she started a blog called True Crime Diary, and shortly after her obsession with uncovering who the East Area Rapist and then the original Night Stalker began. In one excerpt, Michelle wrote, quote, By day, I'm a 42-year-old stay-at-home mom with a sensible haircut and goldfish crackers lining my purse. (laughs) In the evening, however, I'm something of a DIY detective. I delve into cold cases by scouring the internet for any digital crumbs authorities may have overlooked. Then I share my theories with the 8,000 or so mystery buffs who visit my blog regularly. Wow. I know. She has, I like am so envious of her writing. She's like an impeccable writer. The way she just like beautifully describes things and the just, it's just chef's kiss. Originally, two cases later merged together with the help of new DNA technology. Michelle had originally learned about the Iran's cases after reading a self-published book by one of the few remaining detectives that seemed to still care about the case, and that was retired detective Larry Crompton. So Crompton worked on the East Area Rapist Task Force, and he poured over police reports for literal decades. He helped track down leads, and he wrote the 479-page book that Michelle had read, which was Sudden Terror, and this was on the crimes committed by the East Area Rapist. After the ransacker crimes, Crompton recalled Sacramento investigators warning them, We think he's coming to your area. 
you had better be ready for him. By 1978, that serial rapist had arrived in Contra Costa County, and they were not ready. The act of terror the East Area Rapist expelled on this area, Crompton never forgot. He recalled how gun cells skyrocketed and families designed escape routes. After the attacks, some victims divorced, other abused alcohol and drugs, and one woman was so traumatized she couldn't return to her own home, not even to gather her possessions. Oh my gosh. I know. I was like, when I read that, it just like gave me chills because, yeah. I mean, to be violated in that way, I, I, I can't even. And then you probably like don't even want your possessions anymore. No. Anything that, I mean, no. Yeah. Oh, wow. So Crompton became obsessed with solving this case. And I am so, so thankful that he was still alive to see uh, D'Angelo eventually get caught. So after Michelle read Crompton's book, she discovered a message board devoted to the A&E show, show, Cold Case Files, and there she found a community of others who were obsessed with the case as well. On February 27th, 2013, Michelle wrote an article in the LA Times called In the Footsteps of a Killer, and there she documented everything she knew about the Golden State Killer so far. In this article, she shared some of the information she had uncovered, such as the missing cufflinks he had stolen during one of his ear crimes in 1977. Okay. Yeah. So she later did a random search online to see if by chance the perp had sold them or pawned them. And sure enough, she got a hit. Oh my gosh. They were being sold at a vintage shop in Oregon for $8. And she, of course, immediately purchased them and even paid the $40 for overnight delivery. Oh, my gosh. Immediately after this, she set up a meeting with Larry Poole, who was, and I guess, I don't know if he still is. I don't, I mean, obviously, he's been caught, but I don't know if at the, like, at the end of it, he was the leading investigator. But Mm, he was kind of the face of the case for a while. And he was an Orange County Sheriff's detective. Okay. And he had a reputation for being a bit intimidating. But nonetheless, Michelle felt she needed to have the cufflinks in his possession. Mm -hmm. So once they met and she gave him the cufflinks, he surprisingly told her, quote, you've made me very happy. In fact, I think I love you. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I know. I was cracking up at that. Um, But unfortunately, the cufflinks ended up not being the one stolen from that crime scene in 77. But what it did do is it opened up a new pathway for old case files and evidence to be re-explored. Okay. So it kind of, if nothing else, it kind of lit that fire. Right. Okay. Well, that's good at least. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I was kind of like, oh, man, we were so close. (laughs) I know. I know. But at least at least it did something. Yeah. So over the course of her investigation, Michelle met many detectives, both armchair and professional, that helped her piece together who this sick son of a bitch could be. The social worker, which is a nickname that she gave one of the women that were investigating this crime. The baby, a.k.a. Paul Haynes, Barbara Ray Venter, Larry Poole, Paul Holes, and Billy Jensen, whom... 
I will not be mentioning any further due to some misconduct allegations that he has against him. Mm-hmm. And these are just to name a few. I mean, there's there are so many hands in the what's the saying? Hands in the pie? No, that's not it. I have no clue. Hands in the bucket? I don't know. Whatever it is, you guys know. Someone's screaming it at me right now, but um, there was a lot of people who had their hand in, in this fucker getting caught, is what I'm trying to say. Too many, or a lot of chefs in the kitchen? Yeah, that sounds good. We'll, we'll, we'll I know that's not that what you're thinking, but that works. <laughs> I like it, yeah. <laughs> and Michelle gained a special level of trust from law enforcement officials who then granted her access to very sensitive in- information. With the help of her message board comrades, Michelle began piecing together clues from the cases. And it didn't take long for the case to take over her life in a lot of ways. She gained access to boxes and boxes of case files. She would speak to survivors and victims' families almost daily. Her investigation became all-consuming. She needed justice. She decided to write a book, and she titled it, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is a quote that D'Angelo said to one of his victims, and he said, you'll be silent forever, and I'll be gone in the dark. Oh, that gives me chills. I know. That is, like, so sinister. Yeah. Michelle's research was so thorough, she could tell you how many boys' names started with the letter N in the 1930s and 40s because the Golden State Killer stole those cufflinks which had the initials NR. And she thought maybe, just maybe, this was a lead. Maybe he stole them because his own initials were NR, or at least N. Right. Oh, my gosh. And using genealogical DNA technology was also Michelle's idea. And this type of technology was, you know, in its infancy as it was, but it was also kind of looked down upon because... People felt like that was an invasion of privacy to some degree. Right. But Michelle thought, you know what? We've exhausted almost all of our resources, all of our efforts. This is worth a shot. And first of all, amazing of her to to do that. Mm -hmm. This has been happening. This this is going to keep happening. This type of technology being used to solve cases and I'm sorry, but if you submit your DNA to an online public database, mm-hmm. I don't think you can come and say they're invading my pro- privacy. Yeah. Like, if you choose to submit your DNA to a company, I just feel like, I mean, I guess companies have, should be, like, keeping things private. But but when you submit something like that, I feel like you should know that you're submitting it to a company right. that could like i'm sure there's fine print about it so if you really there care is. about that mm-hmm. then don't submit your dna like right there I mean, are certain ones that what like they it says in their contract or whatever that they will not allow the information to be used for right. you know, investigations or police work or whatever the terminology is but i think at that time it was kind of just like not like that maybe and so it was like free for all but i don't know and i get i get people don't want their privacy invaded but if you're submitting your dna to a company but what's invaded like you're kept your your uh uh your family member committed a crime like that has no invasion on you yeah (laughs) so like why are you mad yeah personally i i 
find that frustrating. I do get why people, I, I don't want to like piss people off because no. I do get why some people might feel like it's an invasion of privacy. But again, you're doing this willingly. It's not like DNA was taken from you mm-hmm. without you knowing and then submitted. Like you're you're willingly doing it. Or how about like put your put yourself in the victim's or their family's shoes. If your yeah. loved one or your husband or your wife or your mother or your father or daughter whatever had been murdered yeah. and this person was saying, "No, you can't use my family's DNA." How would you feel? You wouldn't I don't think you would be very happy about that. Yeah. Anyway, let me just hop off that soapbox real quick. <laughs> okay, so, you know, Michelle was like, let's let's shoot our shot with it. But unfortunately, she would never get to see the Golden State Killer brought to justice. Mm. On April 21st, 2016, Michelle McNamara passed away in her sleep. So sad. According to her autopsy, her death was an accidental overdose due to the effects of mixing prescription drugs, including Adderall, fentanyl, and Xanax. Michelle had an undiagnosed heart disease, or she had undiagnosed heart disease, which was also a contributing factor. Mm, so heartbreaking. I know. In an article with, I put New York instead of New York. Um, in an article with the New York Times, her husband Patton said, quote, It's so clear that the stress led her to make some bad choices in terms of the pharmaceuticals she was using. She just took this stuff on, and she didn't have years of being a hardened detective to compartmentalize it. And, I mean, she did. She gave so much of herself and so much of her time. Yeah. She really did. Yeah. Um, With the help of Paul Hayes and a few others, Michelle's book was released on February 27th, 2018, nearly two years after her death and two months before an arrest would be made in the case. Mm. Wow. The same year Michelle passed away, authorities opened a task force devoted to finding the Golden State Killer, hoping more tips from the public would surface. So now we're going to delve into another key player in this investigation, and you may have heard this name before. Paul Holes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Holes was sworn in as an investigator for the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office in 1994. That same year, he discovered the cold case files of the East Area Rapist. Okay. That single-handedly ignited his passion for catching this perpetrator. Every chance Holes had, he'd review the case file using his own free time in between active cases. In 2001, as I mentioned earlier, there was a break in the DNA, and it it expanded the case even further. When DNA from the ear matched other unsolved murder crimes throughout California, the case again gained traction after laying somewhat dormant for years. Holes gathered as many DNA samples as he could get his hands on without diminishing the evidence. Then he reached out. I know. Then he reached out to a genealogist and scientist, Barbara Ray Venter. 
Barbara used DNA from the Golden State Killer to construct a genetic profile of the suspect and create a family tree. Wow. While researching the Ear case files, some investigators started to think Ear and the Visalia Ransacker cases could be the same person based on evidence similarities. But in the beginning, Holes was skeptical. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he didn't really see it, but... But that also proves that he's like a good detective Detective, because he wasn't just like automatically going for it. Right. You want to try to prove yourself wrong. And in that process, you end up proving yourself right if you're a good detective, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. So unfortunately, as we know, there was no DNA evidence that they could use to compare the two cases. So, But there was still some DNA that could be tested in holes along with a team of five investigators working with Barbara, the genealogist, uploaded the killer's DNA profile from a Ventura County rape kit to the website JetMatch. The results identified 10 to 20 people who had the same great-great-great-grandparents as the Golden State Killer. Barbara, Barbara then used this list to construct a large family tree... And from there, they were able to establish two suspects. Oh my gosh. One was ruled out by a relative's DNA test, leaving one lone former cop behind, which funnily was one of the attributes Michelle assumed the Golden State Killer had. She said he's probably a cop and he might even have been a former military personnel. Right. And he was both. Oh my gosh. I know. She's just like so amazing. Okay. Yeah. And that man, as we know, was Joseph James D'Angelo. That's In- just crazy. <laughs> the whole process it went through to, right? to get there. I know. Like, it's so oh, cool. Wow. I, I like, I would love to just see that like connection being made. Yeah. It's just such a neat, like, I wish they could do that in every single case. That would just be so I know. awesome. In the years after the last original Night Stalker murder took place, D'Angelo had been working as a truck mechanic at a Roseville distribution center for Save Mart Groceries. He continued to work there until he retired in 2017, which is great because the following year he was arrested and didn't even get to enjoy his his retirement. That's good. D'Angelo was living in Citrus Heights with one of his daughters and a granddaughter. Oh my god. For anyone that knew him during these years, he seemed like a normal guy. He liked to ride bikes, go fishing, and aside from his occasional temper issues, he was liked well enough by everyone around him. Right. We still have the arrest, the trial, and the aftermath of this monster's reign of terror on the Golden State, and we're going to dive headfirst into those details in part three. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Because like I said at the beginning, I could not squeeze this case into two parts without doing it proper justice. And yeah, I think that's totally fair. It needs it needs its 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 time. So, yeah. um, But can you just imagine thinking you got away with this crime until you're 72 years years. old? I know. Yeah, And then all of a sudden they are like, we know what you did. Yeah. Oh, my God. And they I mean, they set him up too. they they got him good. Oh, I, I can't, can't yeah, I can't wait for the details I, I for like his really, arrest. Like I said in the first episode, I think I feel like because it was happening right as I was starting to get into true crime, I didn't mm-hmm. really realize the like, like the, 
um, intensity. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't realize how big this case was Mm -hmm. when it was happening. So I didn't follow it super closely. So I don't really know a lot of the details about this. So yeah. I'm excited to hear how he gets freaking caught and convicted and has to pay for what he did after so many years. It's so weird because I texted you this. I was like looking at um, the picture, like his uh, mugshot picture, Mm -hmm. and he just looks like this frail, like pitiful, old. I mean, he looks like someone's like great grandfather. Like he just looks so old and so like not decrepit, but like just so frail and it's yeah. like that guy did all that what yeah it's, it's unbelievable insane. it's like just he was so much younger yeah when he did it and yeah just yeah and no, for whatever reason he stopped i mean i guess he stopped he didn't yeah true i, mean, I definitely haven't... think he did stop i wonder if he like kept i don't know i don't know either because i mean I unless wonder... he they were so spread out yeah but I wonder if he he either found something else to occupy his time or he was afraid that he was going to start getting caught. Like maybe he had a close call, like closer than we realize. Even know. Yeah. And he was like, okay, this is, I need to, I need to stop. Yeah. Um, But I guess we'll never really know what yeah. led him to stop, which is just crazy because I feel like so many of these serial killers do this until they're caught or until they die mm-hmm. and he just just stopped and started yeah. living a like quote-unquote normal life yeah i mean he really did he i mean from what we can see from the outside looking in i mean that's exactly what it looks like and a lot of people speculate that the reason he stopped was because his all three of his daughters were born mm-hmm. um because i believe the last one was born in 89 Okay. And his last murder was in 86 when his second daughter would have been born. Right. So maybe just so like the pressure of that Having and a then family life. Yeah. And then he was married, which obviously we know that he didn't give two shits or a fuck about that. Yeah. Um, But they separated in 91. Okay. So maybe, I don't know, maybe his responsibility. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, you, I, we'll never know because he's never, he's never come out and said, hey, this is why I stopped. It. No, no, definitely not. And his not. poor family, like, because you said he was living with his daughter and granddaughter when he was caught. Yeah. Like, his poor family just having no clue. Yeah. And I'm sure they've gotten a ton of backlash, which they do not no, deserve they definitely in the have. slightest. His, because... his, his ex-wife and his children specifically. But a lot of people... I mean, a lot of his family members go to bat for him, and we'll get into more of that in part three. Okay. Um, but which is mm. surprising to some extent, but at the same time, when you know a version of somebody, and yeah. it's not the version that people are describing to you, yeah, that's true. You don't believe it, and it sometimes it takes, and you know, we've been through this. Sometimes it takes yeah. seeing it for yourself to realize who somebody really is. So, and they yeah. never did. So. Yeah. But yeah, wow, yeah, it's crazy. But we'll get into the details of the arrest, the trial, and then life after the Golden State Killer in part three. Um, yeah. Thank you guys for being patient um, as I try to get part two done for you. I had a crazy hectic hectic last couple of weeks, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And if you're a patron, the February Patreon episodes will be out this week, and yeah. um, we're covering a pretty big case. I mean, they're both big cases, but the video case we're doing this this month is a highly, highly requested case. So if you want to check that out, we always have the link in our description. Yeah. 
yep but that's all we have for you guys today thank you guys so much for listening don't forget to leave us a rating and review and we will catch up with you guys on thursday with part three and until then keep it human bye